Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Ela Fish, who is a senior DevOps engineer and SRE, is a public speaker, a core organizer at events like DevOps Days Tel Aviv, and a member of numerous tech communities. Ela joins us from Israel. Ela Fish, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained infrastructure code? First of all, have an infrastructure as code because some companies still do things the manual way or at least have infrastructure as code but not have everything in the infrastructure maintained in infrastructure as code. And then some of the things are manual, some are in code, and then it's very hard to maintain and, and really get a grasp of everything that you have. So if I, I say if you do something and adopt infrastructure as code, at least do it consistently and make sure everything that you have is maintained as such. You know, one thing is I don't come from the infrastructure code historically. I've dabbled here and there with some Terraform configurations that other people have worked on and tried to figure out how to make changes. And I think something that I've always been curious about is, do you have advice for software developers that are trying to wrap their hand around it? Because I feel like, let's just take like, if you're working with like AWS or Google Cloud or something, and you're not really sure what some of the configurations are, and you want to try something quickly, it sometimes feels quicker to just go check a box in the user interface and, and like, what does this do? And then you go test something and come back. And But also wanting to understand that you want to be able to track your changes over a period of time and know who changed it, why, was that the thing that did what you wanted it to? How do you think of, or how do you like kind of think about that in terms of like exploring while also trying to codify your organization's infrastructure code? So exploring is nice because sometimes, let's say a developer needs a bucket for their purposes. And they don't know all of the features, like what is the exactly the retention policy? What does it cover? So in order, in order to really understand all of these things, I'm all for uh, doing things uh, like experiencing it like through your feet and, and really do whatever you need to do and, and get your hands dirty in order to make sure that you understand what you're doing. But then once that you finish to play with the things, now you know exactly what is needed and what are the configurations that you need. Now it's time to make it you know, organized and in code and make sure that everything that you need is well conveyed in code as well. And it can be also established with self-service. So this is actually actually something that we did during work in which they know what they need because they created some buckets until now. We created them the, the module of Terraform in Terraform to create the buckets. And then they just created themselves. They open a PR. I'm the one to just uh, review the PR, see that everything is okay. And if so, I just approve it. So that way I enable them to do whatever they want and still have guardrails as in the pull request review to make sure that it is done properly. You know, how do you approach pre-planning while still fostering an environment that encourages experimentation and innovation within your software development teams? I know you're, you're kind of talking about giving them a place to play and they can, you know, send you a pull request when they're ready, but do you feel like they need a lot of training or do you kind of just let people just do a lot of experimenting and then come back? When do you know that like something that they're enabling or proposing may or may not be necessary? If it, is it just that outside, outside of the realm of what your team just decides is acceptable or is, is that kind of obvious? You know, developers usually know their realm pretty good, which is code. And then whenever they need to do stuff in infrastructure, which is usually the realm of us 
DevOps engineers or system engineers, then we are the ones to come and say, hey, are you sure you need that or stuff like that. So yeah, there is like a give and take in this area exactly. So if they ask for something, we don't just say immediately yes, we ask the relevant questions in order to make sure that what they ask for is really what they really need and not just, hey, let's give us uh, the biggest machine type in AWS just because we can. No, we can, but it will cost us you know, a lot of money and we don't want that. So if you do request a GPU machine, let's understand why do you really need it. If they don't have this, this knowledge and that's okay, we don't really expect them to know all the bits and pieces in info, infrastructure because this is why we are there. At least we will be there in the pre-planning phase to understand, okay, are you sure that what you are asking is what you need? If not, let's see and really plan ahead in order to make sure that we don't waste too much money for the company, that we give your application whatever it really needs and not too much and not too less. I always find it interesting when you're, when the, the conversation around like how large of a container or CPUs you're going to need or how large of a you know, machine you're going to need to run your application on, if it's like a new prototype of something, how do you, are there some good strategies that you've, you and your teams have figured out to like calculate something like that, to quantify that? Like, is it, how do you go about having those conversations if it's like for internal usage for initially versus something that's going to be public facing? Because sometimes I feel like some developers are just kind of guessing and they don't really know. And they're like, well, this one seems, we'll see how far this one gets, right? And then, but I don't know if they know that there's necessarily a good way to calculate that process. Wise, I don't know if there's an actual calculate method that you can do. Maybe there is, and I'm just not aware of it. But the thing that I will do is that, first of all, I will set up dashboards for them, also in them, whenever they have their applications, they have dashboards to look at, and then they can uh, spot trends. And also they can utilize a stress test and low tests in order to simulate production behavior as much as we can, of course. Nothing is really, uh, you know, the same. But as much as we can, we will simulate production behavior. And then they can check the behavior of the application and say, okay, we gave it a 4G gigabits of RAM, but it doesn't really need it. It needs only 200 megs and that's it. So dashboards and monitoring in general, and also making sure you run the proper test, like load tests and stuff like that could help you understand if you calculate it correctly or not. You know, when you're, when you're thinking about your interactions with software engineers, are there aspects of DevOps that you find are most often like misunderstood, like in terms of what your role or what, what's involved in DevOps or maybe overlooked? So I would say that the whole culture of DevOps is basically until, let's say, system engineers were like the guardrails, the gatekeepers of production, and they had to say no to everything, or it's, at least that's, that's what they felt, that they need to say a no to, to everything that the uh, software was uh, asked for because software engineers asked for because we need to protect production at all costs, right? So the whole idea of DevOps is basically let's understand how can we say yes to you because we understand we are both here for the same reason. We want to make our business successful. Both have like maybe different uh, ways of achieving it, but we're still here for the same goal. So once we both understand that and we have this business mindset that we are here to make our company successful, now let's see how can I say yes to you. And then priorities could shift because developers want X. Maybe I want Y, but what the developers need at the moment is more important for the success of the company. So then I will shift my priority in order to help the developers achieve whatever they need because we want to achieve the goal of making the company successful. What do you think the contributing factors to that kind of that mind shift 
led to that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering like, the, I feel like the, you know, like you have a system engineering and a system sys admins and things like that. Other title titles that have been used in, you know, a couple of decades ago. I also think about like database administrators were a thing and then where they were the ones protecting the data, like the database needs to be protected at all costs. And like you had to get everything pre-approved with them. And I feel like that's drastically shifted quite a bit over the last few decades. Do you feel like it was more of a the shift that there there was a bottleneck there or was it more of we needed to remove some barriers or or is it that these that there may be more of a cross-pollination of similar skill sets kind of overlapping more now with like you're working on infrastructure code and then like maybe rather than you know manually configure everything not that there wasn't code and configuration files that could be versioned and you know in source controlled in the past and stuff like that but like what do you think kind of contributed to that the world that we find ourselves in now i would say that yeah there was a bottleneck the same as there was a bottleneck in terms of software engineers and devops or system engineers so it's the same we we have things we think that we need to guard them at all costs whether if it's our infrastructure or our databases. But yeah, things shifted and we would see less, at least, I don't know how it is in other countries, but at least in Israel, we see less uh, DBAs like in the old times, you know, and now databases are being managed by either DevOps engineers or even by the developers directly or data engineers. So, you know, the, the responsibilities shift or at least divided between couple of uh, disciplines in a way that allows everyone to take care of it from their own angle. So I would say that because of that, the bottleneck got released a bit because things are still getting maintained and getting taken care of. But since it's more coupled with the other aspects of each, you know, each to its own and the work that they do, I think it makes the bottleneck uh, reduced as opposed to previous years. That, that makes sense. And I, you know, you're kind of thinking about the bottlenecks that kind of happen on both ways. And there is interesting that they're more of a shared ownership and maybe it's more of like a team-based ownership where I felt like it was always more consolidated around like primarily like the DBA or like a small team that was managing that, you know, responsibility. Now we get this like shared thing. Do you feel like the tooling that we have available makes it easier for people to feel like they're very proficient with these things or do you feel like that's diluted a little bit as a result in terms of like how experienced you can be with being a really good manager of a database and performance and understanding all of the things that go into being a really good not that that wasn't maybe a little bit of a black box in some ways too we think we just trusted the dba knew what they were doing but like it's a i think there's always a lot of like how can you be really, really experienced at all things, you know what I mean? When it's kind of like a shared thing. Yeah, so I would say that the solution, I don't know if it's a solution or a band-aid, but the thing is that now we have managed services that manage and the cloud providers manage the databases for us, you know, RDS and AWS and all sorts of uh, solutions in various uh, cloud providers. So I would say we basically handed this the need of knowing how things work and all the moving parts in a database and there are a lot of things to know, we moved it and we transferred this the wand to the cloud providers and say, hey, please take care of it for us and I will just use it as a user and just have my data stored and that's it. So 
that definitely helped achieve simplicity because then you don't need to know all of these bits and pieces and you can just just to show that it is being managed by the cloud runner and that's that and you can just use it as a user and that's it is it good is it bad everyone can uh, you know attest to what they are thinking but it I think we can definitely say that it decreased a lot of overhead from the people that need to manage it daily We'll be back with our interview with Ila in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please pop over to Apple Podcasts, write a review, and if you're not sure what to write, you can say, three stars. Robbie has a goofy voice, goes on lots of rambles, but he has good guests. Or five stars. One of my favorite guests was Ila Fish. Just say which one of the episodes you really liked. That could be all you need to write. And give us a rating. It helps make all the difference. The more you rate, the more reviews, the more we seem to pop up on the radar of other people. So that gets us more listeners and that gets me more excited to keep doing this. So thank you. Also, is there someone you think I should interview on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to our interview with Ela Fish. That's a that's a fair a fair assessment of that. So one of the topics that I was really looking forward to speaking with you about is about a project that you worked on related to migrating an entire development code base from Bitbucket to self-hosted GitLab. I think that was a Bitbucket cloud you were using prior, right? Could you sh- first share some of the things that went into like the de- business decision why that was that why the, your organization felt that was necessary that led to the migration, and then maybe you can talk a little bit about like what led to a I assume, a successful outcome? Uh, Yeah, so first of all, I'm not sure I can cover the business uh, reasoning behind it because it was in my previous companies and I'm not sure I can discuss it or not. So let's leave it to a mystery. But in terms of the migration itself, yeah, it was successful because uh, even though I had very little time relatively to deal with it because I did it in one month and a half and I did it almost entirely by myself, of course, I needed this team to help me with issuing a certificate and this team for LDAP integration and stuff like that. But mostly the work was done by me solely. Still, it was successful because I deployed it first on dev environment. I did some of the major repositories migration there in, in dev. And then I encountered all of the issues. Of course, there were issues that I encountered only in production because Murphy and Murphy's law. But still, a lot of things I encountered in, in dev and then I opened tickets and some things were resolved by GitLab and some they say, hey, we have an open a ticket in which I still get updates about the ticket being open and they don't do anything about this ticket, but let's put it aside. But that's the thing. Even though I had little time to deal with it, I still had the ability and you know the, the approval, let's say, to set it up as two environments, dev and production. And then I all the planning and all the, the play around, I did it on dev and then all the conclusions I had, I implemented in dev in production, and that way I also knew how to uh, calculate the the time needed for the migration in, in actual production in a way that wouldn't interfere with the development teams. Because I I chose to do it in on my weekend because I saw that in dev it took time, and I decided to uh, sacrifice one uh, weekend of my own instead of 
making the entire development teams uh, lose a couple of hours of work because I wanted to do it, if I would do it in uh, doing business hours. So definitely things uh, that I could test it in dev, I did it, and things that I saw that I had to shift it a bit in a way that will be good for the business and, and not waste time for the developers, I did that too. Interesting. With those types of migrations, I'm, I'm assuming there was several phases of it. I'm just like, for example, you would have to potentially, like, I'm just thinking like even our own, my own team's like development environments where like we're using Bitbucket and we're in the middle of a migration to GitHub for some, for a couple of projects. And we're, you know, it's like not all repositories are treated equally. And like, there's like a lot of different things that pop up. Like, well, we can't move this one until we move these three at the same time, or this one has to happen before because it's a dependency. Or there's also like what happens when we actually try to deploy this to production. And is there going to be some weird Git cache issue somewhere with like an origin somewhere like that, all the fun things. But was there a process of communication that you were able to like map out a timeline that you knew that people were going to be able to perform certain, like everybody had to do certain things to make this work right? Or did you have, were you able to remove a lot of the manual steps that some like individual developers or anyone that was contributing to the repositories would need to be doing themselves? So I would say communication was a very important pillar here, especially because I did it all by myself. So I had to communicate a lot of things, things to my managers to understand where am I at at this project and the, the status of the project and also to the um, teams that needs the that the repositories need to be migrated because they need to know what's going on at all, all points in time. And also I communicated things to the team leaders of all the teams beforehand because I wanted a buy-in. You know, I wanted to make sure that they are harnessed to this. And even though I'm doing it by myself, I have their support and I have their collaboration. So communication was definitely a key here. And in terms of the actual migration, yeah, uh, I uh, mapped the, the repositories and then I saw, uh, I basically communicated with each team separately and I said, okay, when can we do it? I want to do it in a bulk, AKA let's move all your repositories together in order to avoid these dependencies. So then I just communicated with them. I coordinated when we should do it. And when we do it, when we actually did it, I just, I told them, you're not gonna be able to commit for a second or a couple of minutes when I did the migration because I knew that these types of repositories were uh, small enough to be able to migrate it quickly. Uh, so I just um, removed permissions from Bitbucket so to make sure that nobody will commit. That way I know exactly that the latest state of the repository is, is exactly that and no discrepancies uh, there. And then I migrated, I told them, hey, here you go. Everything is set on GitLab. Start working with that. So yeah, definitely communication and coordinate with all teams were a necessity here. I'm not that, admittedly not that familiar with using GitLab, but I'm curious, were you able to do things like migrate like pull requests or anything like that? Was that something that the team was using much of, or was that part of something that you were able to retain that between like a migration from Bitbucket to GitLab? If I remember correctly, pull requests were um, migrated. Yes, they were migrated, but there was a, a hiccup or a bug in um, in the migration or or generally in a GitLab in a way that you have the um, uh, the pull request, but the creator of the pull request was administrator, aka the user that did the migration, which is me. Again, how did I know about it? I did it in Dev. I notified them upfront. Hey, this is what's gonna happen, and just be aware and, and see that hey, maybe 
uh, wait for like a crucial um, pull request for after the uh, migration, or if uh, some are not really important, then it's okay that it's with administrator. But from what I remember, this is what the only bug that was related to that, but the pull request uh, itself was still kept intact. Everything was working all good and only the user got changed. So I told them this is going to happen. Are you okay with it? Yes, no. And then we continue from there. That's good to hear. Like these, these information was still able to come across, and then I'm assuming your developers could still figure out who whose commits were whose, so you can still kind of figure out who it was and just know that, that was just some residue from uh, a database or the the migration, which those things happen. So it's better than none of it existing, right? So that's for sure. It's good. Nice to know that there's a fairly happy path for that process. So. You know, we often hear about the importance of company culture and values. How have these elements manifested in your professional life, particularly in the context of software development and DevOps practices? Are there any specific examples you can share? So, yeah. And actually, I have a talk that I gave in a conference, in an online conference, and I'm going to give it also as a keynote in uh, in a conference in Utrecht. I hope I pronounced this city correctly, near Amsterdam. Uh, so, basically... This talk is about how to leverage our values in our day-to-day professional life and not just in our personal life, which means that you don't need to only think about technology whenever you go to get interviewed somewhere and just ask about the technology stack, but also ask about things that matter to you. So, for example, if I care and like my one of my leading values that I care about is communication, I need to ask things that really emphasizes if communication is something that is important in the company's culture as well or not. And I'll give you an example. Actually, that's what I said in my talk. I gave like 10 values and I showed examples for questions for each value to, in a way that if you answer them, you know if that these values get manifested in the workplace or not. So you can utilize these questions both doing job interview as much as you can uh, ask questions and see whatever they respond but also like a retrospective with yourself to see if the current workplace workplace that you have that you're working in uh, really manifests the values that you believe in then it will help you so for example for communication check the slack messages are they whenever there's an issue that someone raises and someone uh, replies is the reply fixed check now or the issue was X. I did a change that Y. And that way, you know, communication is important and people really encourage communication to be conveyed. And then that way, you know that your values are being kept and really manifested during your day to day. It's interesting as someone that hires people, it's something that I'm always thinking about when, you know, we're evaluating candidates against, you know, our company core values and such and the ways that we try to we like to see those manifested and then and why we also try to keep people and or if someone's no longer or we thought they were going to be a good fit for us but then maybe they're not aligning with values but it's it's very important i think of all employees or contractors anyone that's involved in any relationship professionally to think about these things and so you mentioned you thought of you know came up like maybe a list of 10 values like how do you kind of like align those with like a company's values and do you feel like this is something it's i think something if to me it feels like something that and i don't know if this is maybe just my worldview or being in my bubble of being in the, in the united states but it, it to me it's felt like this has been an important thing for employees for them to think about and me to be more accountable for as an employer for a while now, do you feel like it's something more like a something that's like in your area of the world that's becoming more of a 
topical thing in your to have these types of conversations? I would say that that yeah, because that's actually something that I say also in my talk. In fact, that okay, let's say you have cool tasks, okay, but doing doing these cool tasks, you have micromanager uh, sitting down in your neck, and you feel pressure to deliver fast because the company believes in delivery and they don't really allow you to do a full research of the tasks that you are given to make sure that uh, things are being done correctly. And you have this pressure of let's do it quickly just because a company believes in delivery. Definitely this, if the company does, is not aligned with your values, you will for sure experience frustration. You will feel that you can't really shine because the things that you value and the things that you are strong in are not getting appreciated in in the company because they let's say they care about delivery but you are a person like a very detail oriented person and you do things very like in a neat way but they don't care about it because they they wanna they adopt the quick and dirty and uh, uh, as long as there is a product to 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 use right so definitely values are something that needs to be examined uh, i wouldn't say daily because it's very hard and exhausting to do it in a daily manner. But what I suggest is to do like retrospective with yourself. You can choose the cadence however you want. It could be every month, three months, six months, whatever you feel comfortable to you and see if your values are still aligned with the company's values. If not, I would say consider replacing your job because it's not worth it. Yeah, we love tech, we love our job, but if it means to give up who we are and what we believe in in order to do what the company wants, that's not great. We need to both do what we love and uh, make sure the company values the same things that we value. And that way we both gain from this experience because we deliver what we think is good. Company will understand why we see this is good and then everyone is happy. Hey, it's Robbie again. Just a quick note to let you know that during the recording of this, we had some technical difficulties. It happens. Our guests had to switch microphones, and so the audio might sound a little different for the rest of the episode, but just wanted to explain why it shifted. Things happen. With that, let's get back to our interview. I think that it's an interesting point there. And one of the things that I'm, I always reflect on is when I do participate in interviewing potential candidates to join my company, and I am fully aware that these software engineers could work at a lot of different companies and I will ask them what it is it about our organization that they feel like they would that would be good for them to want to join and like what it is it about us and the type of work that we do and the percentage of people that will respond well you use technology x and I'll be like that's why you want to work for me because we just happen to specialize in this one technology not because the type of work that we do or the type of clients we're servicing like it's just the technology and it always kind of weirdly bores me in a weird way and I'm just like that's like, do you have more to offer than that? But there's like an interesting balance also where I do need people that are excited about the technology and want to do that work. And so there's like this interesting struggle that I have of like, well, I don't want to project my ideas of like what we're doing, like trying to like inflate it to be like, we're doing some grandiose thing because we're, we're a consulting company. We just help people with a similar type of technology stack. So if someone comes in and they're really good, really good at that, excited about that, and they're really, really happy working with Ruby on Rails eight hours a day, and then they go home and do whatever they're, they're going to do the rest, of the, the rest of their time, that should be okay too. So how do you kind of factor that, like 
that type of thing up when you're looking for where you're working at and things like that? Do you find that there's some compromise or is it that there needs to be like a lot of align, like a hundred percent alignment there? I would say that first of all, like if I would be a company, I wouldn't want to hear that people come just because of the stack, because let's say, okay, now we switch stacks because and we switch technologies because it doesn't fit our use case anymore. So now you'll leave. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, it shouldn't be that coupled. It should be, and also me as a, when I get interviewed to companies, I remember I was, uh, I came to a company and I interviewed there and I was disqualified because I didn't have much experience at the time with AWS. And why? Because they know, uh, they knew that uh, my previous job beforehand, I worked two years uh, with GCP. Okay. So just because I don't have experience on AWS, you will disqualify me. The concepts are the same. So I wouldn't want to go and work for that company because I don't want them to be, to align me with a specific technology. I want them to hire me because they see the potential and the potential and not only potential, but the ability of me to learn whatever I need to. So if now I need AWS, I will learn AWS. Now I need GCP, I'll learn GCP. So you need for, in my opinion, companies need to hire not based of the specific knowledge that the people have and bring with them, but what they are able to learn. So, and that how you can measure it, you can ask about projects that they did and then see mm. how they react or how they cover the aspects of learning the types of technologies doing implementing this uh, project. For example, in the GitLab migration that I did, I didn't know anything about GitLab beforehand. And I had to create the GCP project, deploy the Helm chart, which is pretty like, I think it's the most complex Helm chart I ever encountered, the, the GitLab one. And I, at the time I, I used Helm like uh, basic, you know, in a basic way, not complex. So I had to learn uh, Helm like in a more complex way in order to really deal with the GitLab, I had to learn GitLab itself because I had to learn all the moving parts in order to deploy it properly. And I did it all doing implementation, doing the migration all in one month and a half. So this is what companies need to look at. Not that I know, now I know GitLab, who cares? They need to see that I'm able to adapt to uh, situations and learn new things on the go. And, and this is what makes me more valuable. Not the fact that I know AWS or GCP or whatever, but the fact that I'm able to learn whatever I need to on the go. Yeah. So I think you make a really good point there. You know, like trying to, you're trying to look for, you know, when you're looking for jobs, you're looking for play, employers that will see the potential and know that you can solve very different problems and adapt as things pop up and new change requirements. And that's important. And it's also important for those listening to hear that like, it's important to try to find people that have show a lot of promise and potential. I think that makes sense for a lot of people, but I think one of the things that's, I don't know, do you, are you often in positions to be able to help recruit and hire people yourself very often? Not much. I, I did participate here and there in interviews, but not in a, like a full scale. I think one of the, the tricky things as someone that does hire is especially when it comes to, you know, either you're solving a, you're trying to hire people for potential. It was like a, this challenging thing where if they're kind of junior in their career, they don't have a lot of ex examples that they can point to and like, look what I did. And these types of scenarios, like was able to figure something out pretty quickly, whereas people that are more experienced, but then they become more experienced specific things. So they tend to emphasize just how much experience they have with specific things. So it's an interesting balance that like you're kind of almost advocating like as someone that's experienced, trying to make sure you can show your versatility and that 
it's not the years of AWS experience. It's the look how quickly you're able to pick up new things and adapt to things. And but sometimes that's so subjected to or the or the environment that you get hired in and the opportunities you have to get to experiment with lots of new things. Some people might end up at a new company and they get to participate in a migration, but then they may never get to work on a lot of new technologies for a long time because it's just like everything is working really well and like that's stable and it's a good job for everybody. But then they don't look as adaptable on their resume or CV as someone else that switched jobs more often and, and found these different things. And so it's complicated, I think, for employers to get a sense of that when, because it's not like there's one way is better than the other necessarily. It's just, you don't really know what your, your needs are going to be there, but I think it's a good thing to at least reflect on quite a bit. What's better. I mean, I know what's better for me as a, as a, yeah. as yeah. a like employee. But for a company, it really depends on the point in time that they are in. Because sometimes, they, let's say they decided to migrate to AWS from on-premise, let's say, for example. And they need someone that is experienced with AWS because then the migration will be quicker. And I'm not mm. saying that there is no importance of having experience with specific things and specific technologies. It's important because, let's say, a lot of people work with AWS, a lot of people work with Terraform, you know. There is yeah. a very important aspect to it. I'm just saying it's not the only thing that matters. And, and I hope com companies wouldn't qualify candidates only because of lacking experience with X, but just having an, like the understanding that they did very sport projects and they are able to learn whatever they need to undergo. But it really depends, again, in the point in time, if they face times of, let's say, migration to AWS, they need people that have strong capabilities in AWS because they want to make sure the migration will be done uh, both seamlessly and smoothly and in the right way because mm. they have enough experience to come and say, okay, I've seen these kind of things during my career and I know that the best thing to do here is X. And then you know that the decisions that will be taking are good enough or good to adopt and then that way it, there is really a importance to, to having this specific experience in anything. So yeah, there is a balance that needs to be maintained here. That's why your podcast is called Maintainable. <laughs> yeah. And I think both are, are important, but you need to find a balance and not a, like sway one towards the other. You need to make sure both are uh, uh, delivered. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And just, uh, you know, for our listeners, you know, I think another thing to consider, I speak with different companies quite a bit and about their software challenges that they're dealing with. And usually if they're trying to recruit someone and they're, they're, they're like, well, we, we have this big project we're going to work on in like six months. And so we need to hire someone that has that experience with that thing. And then I'll, we'll talk to them a little bit about it. And I'm like, well, that's like a two month project you're trying to make a long-term multi-year decision and you're, you're basing it just on that one specific project that you need to tackle, but you have like a two year, you know, you, you want them to stick around for a couple of years. Like, do you have other big, exciting projects that they're going to get to work on? Or could you just hire a contractor specialist to come in for a couple months to help guide your team, make sure that they don't go off the rails too quick, you know, and then like have a very, do what you can to have a successful thing. But it's an interesting thing where they're like, well, hiring outside seems expensive. And I'm like, but so does keeping someone around for two years, if they're the expert at that thing, and then they're not going to be, it's like, you might, 
it's, it's such a tricky thing to try to weigh that up. And like, do you, have you had an opportunity to be involved in either as a contractor or bringing in someone just to help out for a little bit on helping like move those projects a little quicker or seamlessly or training? Uh, yes. So I had, um, in one of my previous companies, we had the Cassandra, which is a database. We were lacking uh, experience and knowledge in that area. And we wanted to do, a, a, what was it? I think a migration for like still bare metal, but different bare metals. And then we had to revisit our backup policy and how to do the migration in a way that wouldn't uh, result in data loss and stuff like that. And that's why we decided to bring a, a consultant from a, like a consultancy to help us with this knowledge. And we knew that this is just a short-term uh, project and we just needed this specific uh, expertise in order to really make sure we have and we make the right decisions and that's it. And that went pretty well? Um, ish. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had the, since I am a, self, I'm a detail-oriented person, I asked a lot of questions and not all my questions were answered. So, um, but it worked and, you know, things were still, were, were okay. So it just means that, I mean, some questions were unanswered, but it doesn't mean that the migration or the, the job that I did was not good based on the, the things that they recommended. It, it was good, but it, it wasn't perfect because it's like anything in life, you can't really, no one knows everything, even a consultancy. So... Mm. You know, I'm curious, have you ever joined a team or organization that, in your opinion, when you showed up, they had suboptimal documentation? Oh, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> oh, ho. yes. <laughs> if, if that wasn't clear for my, uh, <laughs> for my reaction, yes, definitely. Actually, I have a talk that I give in conferences about that, too about why should you write technical documentation and how to do it in a way that you don't have to be a technical writer in order to write documentation. It's super, super critical for transferring, transferring knowledge, for uh, maintaining production systems, because not everything that is in production are things that I touched at. Some mm. things only my team members did and the onboarding that they did is not like in full extent. So if I have run books, for example, then whatever issues that I have with other systems that I not necessarily touched, then I would be able to able to, to maintain it. So that's why really documentation is so important for several uh, and a lot of good reasons. And whenever I saw that uh, companies or departments were lacking documentation, I either created them myself or I just suggested it to my team leader or other team leaders and say, hey, we should cover this X, Y, Z, and then they added it to the backlog and then to the sprint. It didn't kept only in backlog. And also another <laughs> thing that I'm really recommending uh, people to do is that in order to, let's say there are tools out there that help you maintain uh, documents and make sure that they are up to date and stuff like that. But let's say you don't adopt these tools and you want to do it the old fashioned way. How do you do and make sure that documentation is part of your day to day? make it uh, as the task definition of done. AKA, mm. only when documentation was added or updated, then you can close and you may close the ticket in, in Jira or, or Monday, whatever tool that you're using. And that way you still, once it is enforced, once the team leader say, hey, you close the ticket without documentation, if it's enforced, then it will be part of the day-to-day -day and you know that in every uh, ticket that you are handling, uh, you need to make sure documentation is up to date or even existent. 
one of the challenges that I find with documentation is that I think it's I think it's a good thing to highlight. You can have part of your checklist, your definition of done to think about is this done? So it could be in your PR process or however your team agrees that they're going to work to each other. But when you when you are someone that joins a company or a team or switch teams in an organization and you start working on a project, you will quickly identify the documentation that seems to be missing because you're not finding it or it's not very clear to you. But it's very difficult to to ascertain which docu- what documentation is no longer relevant or is could be deleted potentially sometimes as well. Have you found any, you have any tricks up your sleeves on how to, track that stuff down like how do you find outdated or documentation that like people are just completely ignoring but but since but you think maybe i don't i'm I'm new so i don't want to just assume that this can go away and it may not be super easy to like tell who else has used this particular documentation you know it's because that's the tricky thing about documentation it's like who's who's reading this and using it First of all, doing onboarding, the onboarding process, they ask you, hey, please read this documentation, and then you be onboarded to the team. And actually, I had it. I had a case where I started reading this documentation, and then I had questions about this documentation. I asked the relevant people. They said, ah, it's not updated. I'm like, okay, so let's, let's update it. So then he told me the relevant bits that needs to be updated. I updated the document. I didn't wait for someone else to do it. I did it myself. And then, papa, we have a documentation that is updated. So this is one aspect. Another thing is basically, I would say, be attentive. Uh, two things. First of all, check the um, publish date. If you see the publish date is two years ago, probably it wasn't updated and it's not really relevant, at least to some extent. And also check uh, stack messages. See if... You have a question, I assume, you know, companies utilize Slack the enterprise way, so you have history to check in, search for your questions and see if people just replied or they refer to documentation. I have it all the time where in some cases people refer me and other people that, you know, ask the same questions to the documentation and then great, we have it. Or they only reply in the, in the Slack and you know that, okay, that means that no one is really maintaining any knowledge base to, to transfer this mm-hmm. knowledge. So by being attentive, you can identify these kind of things and then you know, okay, do I have documentation to rely on or not? And also in in, um, in meetings, if uh, I got referenced uh, by documentation, I, I referenced documentation myself when people mm. ask things, I'm like, ah, there's a doc for that. Here, check it out. So it's really uh, useful to to pay note to, to these kind of things. And then you know whether there is documentation that is that is used daily or not. That's, that's some good advice there. I think even just the referencing around when you're in meetings or in Slack or what have you, when someone asks a question and you respond to them with documentation, sometimes one of the things that I've start trying to remind myself to do is not just use that as an opportunity to share a link to, you know, a page to Confluence or wherever we have our documentation, but to also, sometimes I don't know where the documentation is offhand, but I might go search for something, you know, and so then I'll, I will, part of my response to someone might be, Oh, that's a good question. I I went to search in Confluence and I searched for this and this came up with these couple of responses and this one might be what you're looking for so that I can leave a little bit of a trail, maybe breadcrumbs of like how I thought about searching for something similar, thinking I'm like, like secretly hoping that that will like manifest and people will pick up on those little clues. Uh, doesn't always work, but at least it's like trying to like, oh, I searched in Slack and I found this in a previous, in a different channel. Maybe this relates. So that way it's not just like, oh, this was 
I think this speaks back to your, uh, you know, you mentioned your values, like fixed type of response versus here's a, providing a little bit more context. Like I always want to try to like provide, paint a picture of how I found this piece of information. Cause it's not like I have all this stuff just carrying around in my head all the time. Like that's not reality. I'm like, I, I rely on searching things just like everybody else. And so I want to learn how to get better at that. Actually, it's something that I also reference when I speak about incident management. So whenever someone managed uh, an incident, then I would say I always advocate for sharing the knowledge because people can learn from your line of thought and how not only learn about the flow of the systems that you dealt with during the incident, but also learn from your line of thought. Learn, let's say someone got the, the alert and they didn't know where to start searching or debugging. Then they can learn from the line of thought and then understand okay, I can start from this and this and that and have like a go-to, a lead to start with. And that's exactly what you, you said. Yeah. You, you show them how to search, which is a lot of, it's like, there's a phrase, right? right? Like uh, give you the hook and not the fish. So mm. that's, that's exactly it. I do have uh, in every job that I work for, I have bookmark of useful docs and I keep bookmarks of relevant uh, mm. Documentation that I need, that I know that I'm gonna use, or at least I have to to search. I have to save because I I know that I will need it someday. I have this you know feeling that I'm I'm gonna need it. <laughs> That's good advice as well. I don't I think the uh, we talk about documentation and notes for the projects. That's like for everybody else on the team, but you know some of my you know just maybe showing a little bit of bias here. Some of my best employees I ever had seem to have their own note-taking bookmarking strategy that like I, I was kind of envious of, and I'm like, I wish I had that skill. I just like, for whatever reason, my brain doesn't, I'm like, I feel like, cause maybe it's different for me. Cause I think I'm the owner of the company. So I'm like, all the documentation is my document. It's like my company's documentation. So it's everywhere. And I'm always going to have access to it until I'm not, I'm not going to get probably fired from my company anytime soon, but like, versus like having my own separate documentation. I feel like if I kept it separately, I'd be somehow keeping them people on the team from finding it. But I think if you're coming into an organization and you want to like keep your own notes around where things are at and stuff like that, that seems like a really effective strategy. Is that something that you just have always had through your education curriculum? You've figured that out or something you've just kind of worked out over the years to, to that, that kind of works well for you? I am also keeping notes. I have, of course, I have uh, Evernote uh, and I have these organized uh, tabs of all the things like notes regarding Jenkins, regarding Git and mm -hmm. you know, what kind of notes, nothing that is relevant for, I mean, it, it depends. Sometimes I have notes specific to the workplace that I am. So whenever I leave a company, I check my notes and see if there's something that is related to that company. If so, I don't only delete, I move it to the knowledge base mm. because then they could benefit from that. So that's like one part. And another part are basically notes that I have that are general, like how to um, delete, uh, the, you know, the, the, the command of uh, deleting a, a remote uh, branch in Git. I couldn't <laughs> re remember it. I don't know. Now I remember it. it's like Git push minus minus delete branch name, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But for a long time, I didn't remember it. So I'm like, okay, let's keep it in, in notes. So a lot of things like how to retrieve, uh, you know, all plugins installed in Jenkins. There's like a script console. You can run a script there and have all the, the plugins. Useful. Let's keep it in yeah. a note, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I keep notes uh, for like things that I need to do that I don't want to, that I know that I'm going to do often or quite often. But procedure-wise, I would always do it in a conference or, or like Docs code or whatever and keep it in the knowledge base of the company because I want others to use it as well. 
Hey, it's Robbie again. I just wanted to let you know that we have a new, new newsletter that you can go to maintainable.fm and in the top navigation says join the newsletters, newsletter or something like that. Click on that. And then what you're going to get is when we have new episodes, you're going to get an email from me that I've written. It's not by some AI bot. I mean, I might use a little bit of AI to help out a little bit, but for the most part, it's me. I'll share some of my thoughts on the episode, some observations I had about it or things that I think might be good takeaways and maybe a couple questions that kind of maybe remind you that there's podcasts you can go listen to. And then also every other week or so, I'm going to shoot at you over an email and I'm going to talk about some email, um, episodes from the archives because I had over 150 guests so far and there's a lot of great conversations that again one of the things about this podcast is that I'm trying to have conversations that will be useful in hopefully a decade from now and so because these are typical things that organizations are dealing with and I, I want to capture these conversations and have them persist for quite a while and still be valuable so yeah join the newsletter maintainable.fm click newsletter with that let's get back to our interview with Ela Fish. makes a lot of sense that's also i know that you're a core organizer of a devops days tlv which is at the end of october can you tell us a little bit more about the event and its significance within the tech community so yeah devops days is a great event uh specifically in tel aviv it is at the end of october which actually uh, falls on the dates of uh, halloween so that's why our theme for this year is horror stories so we hope people will come with masks and stuff like that and the significance of devops days is really is a huge one because not only in Israel, where the, the tech community is very big and people uh, love to come together, discuss tech, meet each other, mingle, network, and listen to technical talks, but also because of the open spaces that we have. And you, you have open spaces in all DevOps Days events because there are DevOps Days in Birmingham, London, Chicago, whatever, in, in a lot of places in the entire world. And in every DevOps Days event, you will find open spaces, which means uh, places where you can just... Let's say you don't want to go and uh, listen to a talk at the moment. You want to talk with like-minded people about any topic that is, com- comes to mind. So, you know, the, the event organizers, in, in our case, it's me in, the, in Tel Aviv and other people, of course, and in other places, other people. We, like, send out a form. You uh, fill out what topics that you want to cover in the open spaces. And then there are tables, you know, and mm. every you have, like, several groups, and each group talks about a different topic. And this is good. And this allows the com- community to come together, discuss burning issues, discuss a lot of things. So I would say that, yeah, the significance of this event and other events are really important for the tech community because people really love to come together, ask for opinions, ask, how how do you do this in your company? Sure, and stuff like that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to the event this year. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be great. That's awesome. So, And I hope that people show up and wear masks or participate in their horror stories. You know, I think about curious, you know, I know that you've, you know, you're, you're organi- you're, you know, one of the organizers of DevOps days in Tel Aviv, but also HashiCorp ambassadors, AWS community builders, women of DevOps, et cetera. Like for, you know, for those listening that might be curious about getting or volunteering or contributing with some, some of these types of events, like for you personally, how have these affiliations kind of contributed to your professional growth and your knowledge sharing, like in your your approaches, in professionally speaking, I would say it was it definitely contributed. I I can definitely say I didn't do it for that. I do it. I did it for the sake of I don't know humanity. I really love to help yeah. people and share knowledge and help other women excel in their uh, jobs and stuff like that. But it started out as just a community work that I do, 
and this is not only started this is still why i'm doing it but i noticed it had an like a positive impact on my career as well because now i go to conferences in israel and people know me i'm like how do you know me ah because i saw a post on you uh, online and i saw that you did this and stuff like that i'm like okay that's that's cool so yeah there is a positive impact um and it's great to see that the community work is being uh, appreciated but mostly that people understand the, the importance of community and this is what really moves me let's say because I, I really believe in the importance of a community I think this is what helps people come together uh, share experiences uh, and and basically that's why it's really I, I'm glad that we have this uh, thriving community in Israel because it's really we, sh- we see that it, it actually works by bringing people together so and I appreciate you kind of pointing that out. And, you know, I, I know I framed that around, like, how has it helped you professionally? And in, in hindsight, I should have asked, like, how has it helped you per- personally? Do you feel like it's changed how you, do you feel like it's just you're, it's something you felt like you needed to do and you, you've done? Or do you feel like you've personally have just, do you feel better and prouder of what you're, how you're spending your time? And that there, there are byproducts that, that it can help you professionally. I think I've seen in different incarnations over the years that people that people want to appreciate, share their appreciation to those that are helping foster community. And so I think for the most part, I think people want to see people succeed professionally and want everybody to succeed. So, but yeah, do you feel like it's also maybe on a personal level, it's, it's also helping you in your, in your kind of standing as a human on the planet? Yeah. Because once I started out with public speaking, for example, I Mm. did to share knowledge, but then all of a sudden, because I'm like more uh, recognizable in the community, people are coming to me and say, hey, it's even I, I consider it as an inspiration for you to see you on stage because it feels like I can do it as well. I, of course, usually hear it from uh, women, uh, but still. And I'm like, OK, wow, inspiration is a very big word. I'm, I'm honored mm-hmm. to, to be considered as inspiration. So things that started out as just me uh, uh, supporting the community, helping people come together, resulted in people uh, really taking it to their level, to their personal, not issues, but uh, personal pain and say, hey, if she can do it and she does it, I can do it too, because mm. she started out regularly, like she just submitted yeah. a talk and that's it or whatever. So that's that's exactly it. I see that the things that I started out, like for my uh, personal angle and my personal uh, bracket, I see that it impacts other people as well uh, in terms of their personal uh, life and also their understanding that community is very uh, important. But yeah, of course, it it, uh, also impacts my uh, professional life because let's say because of this community work, I know a lot of companies. Mm -hmm. uh, So if I want to go and interview in that companies, I now have contact people to to have like my foot at the door, for example. So I would say there is positive uh, things all, all around personal and professional as well. Nice. Nice. Do you, uh, you know, as you reflect back on when you started doing that, you know, again, for people listening that are maybe curious about getting involved, but they're thinking, who am I? I don't, why, why me? Why? I don't, I'm maybe they're not ready to speak at a conference. Um, I don't know if you started speaking first and then you started helping out with other types of event organizing or did you do event organizing and be like, oh, I could probably talk or was, were you, or did you already have that skill set and comfort level to get up on stage or to get on a podcast or to give a talk online or host a webinar? Like those are not things that you just, 
you're not, you don't born having that skill set necessarily. So how did you, do you remember what it was like just to get over that first few experiences? Not only I remember, I, I tell this story quite often uh, to help people understand that, hey, I started out just as, as you. So I started out with the community work because I'm organizing DevOps Days along with uh, Sharon and uh, all of the great people for, I think, the last four or five years now. And uh, how did I start with public speaking? At the end of 2021, during uh, DevOps Days, there was uh, one speaker that bailed on us. And we took an Ignite talk, and Ignite is a talk of five minutes. We bumped mm -hmm. it to be a full talk. And then we had a slot, missing slot of five of a, an Ignite of five minutes. And you know, it's only a couple of days before the event. Who, who will we will bring? Mm -hmm. And then Sharon, the main organizer, Sharon Zitzman, she's force of nature, this woman. <laughs> she came to me and say, okay, please bail us, uh, take this uh, slot, do it. And I'm like, no. And she's like, you're gonna do it and I'm like no I'm not gonna do it and she said no you're gonna do it that's it end of end of discussion I'm like no I don't have I, I don't have you know things to speak about I don't have time you know all of these the fears and everything surfaced I'm like I'm not gonna do it and then she's like okay thank you very much and she just ended the discussion there and like fact you're gonna do it and that's it I'm like okay and then I sat down I thought about you know a, a topic I uh, created the presentation, practiced it, and then went up st on stage, and then it started out my entire really whirlwind of conferences because I spoke until now, I think, in more than 25 or 30 conferences, physical ones, and also online, so a lot of conferences in the last year and a half. So it started out like that. I was fearful like everyone. I thought I <laughs> don't have anything to say like everyone, and I got... A reality check that hey i have things to discuss i have knowledge to share and now i have like seven or eight talks that i give in conferences i had the same fear like everyone and that's why i'm saying hey if you have this fear that's okay to have fears do it anyway okay and i'm here if you want to discuss reach out to me in linkedin or twitter i will help you and you don't have to to talk in conferences as a first phase you can talk in meetups there are meetups that's... everywhere talking meetups this is a great first step towards public speaking that's some uh, some good advice there. I think it's an interesting story too, just hearing that someone kind of put you on the spot and said, no, you're doing this and gave you a constraint. And so there's some interesting things about that particular type of format as well. Did you find it difficult to, five minutes doesn't seem like a long time, but it's a long time when it's to compress topics, one. So that's a very, that's an interesting challenge, but at least it's like a time frame. I think you can probably wrap your head around, okay, I can talk for five minutes, but oh, this topic is too big for five minutes. And like, how do you get that down? And that's, that's, that's an interesting challenge, but yeah, that, that's, I think that's, that's interesting. I, I like that angle. I appreciate the person that did that for you. Um, we have, it's funny, I think about people on my team that I always wish that they would submit talk more ideas more for conferences, but it, they're like, well, I don't know what to talk about. But if I tell them like, hey, next Friday, I need you to give like a five to 10 minute talk on something recently you worked on for the team, just internally. Can you do that? And they're like, uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm scheduling you just it's going to happen. And then like end of the discussion and then they figure it out and it goes great every time. Like I've never had anyone bail on me they just do it. And they're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Um, so I think it's some, some good advice that if you are in a position to tell someone that they need to do it and just have them do it, or, you know, someone that would be a good speaker, but maybe isn't volunteering. It's okay to maybe be a little bit of pushy. 
you can't force someone to do it, but at least, you know, you can be able, definitely encourage people um, as well. So uh, I like that, that angle there. And that's a lot of talks to speak at within like a year and a half after your first one. So that's, I'm pretty impressed with that. It's funny. And then the other part is I used to speak at a lot of conferences and now it's been a, many years since I've spoken at a conference and I'm really nervous again, all over again to start again. I'm like, who am I to talk at a conference? But I just, I, need, I just need to force myself to do it. You know, since you didn't do it for a long time, then this muscle is, is in training and then all of the feels are coming back. But once you will do it yep. again, you will just, it's like riding a bicycle at the end of the day. Yep. You'll, you'll remember why you do it, that you feel happy when you do it and all of the things will just come back. That's good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some thinking about that. So for those listening that are curious about this, just to schedule, just schedule it for yourself or, or help someone else. Ask someone else to schedule one for you and then just make it happen. And just say that you heard it on the podcast. Eli told you to do it. So well, with that, where can listeners best follow your thoughts or contact you online about to learn more about DevOps and SRE type topics? So I will mostly post in LinkedIn, like all my talks and, and like snippets of, of my talks and things that I want to, and, and that I can share. I'm doing it mostly in LinkedIn. Uh, in, in Twitter, I'm posting stuff, you know, like, hey, I petted a, a koala and stuff like that. <laughs> also about talks, but mostly about uh, other stuff. So LinkedIn would be the way to go. And I am planning to create a, a website that gathers all my talks and like also write blog posts that uh, summarize my talks to writings because some people like to hear and, and listen to talks and some people prefer to read. So I am planning to create a website and then have all the knowledge put in there and then people can also uh, reference to there. It takes time. So don't bank yes. on it just now. So <laughs> for now it's LinkedIn. Yeah. No, no, like that's a good idea. I mean, you should do that. And I think because it'll take a little bit of time for this episode to get published because because I have a queue of them. So if you don't get a website done, maybe a recommendation would be you can throw a lot of those links up on like a GitHub readme page is another little idea that I, I've offered up people that like, tends to be a good place to do that. But I'll definitely include links to your LinkedIn and um, in the show notes for everybody so people can keep in touch with you and reach out to you and ask you more questions. With that, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Ella. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thank you for having me. Oh, oh, oh.